Super Talk Mississippi media production. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Jamie Creel with Shelter Insurance. Come see how we've built a name that you can trust and why it is a must to get your free quote today with our Switch and Save. Located in Ridgeland and Florida, Mississippi, give us a call, 601-992-6000. I'm Steve Azar, and I'm on the other side of the microphone, meaning I'm asking the questions this time, and oh, have mercy for the airwaves. I spent 20 years in Music City, wrote and made some hits, traveled the world, and then move my family back to the birthplace of American music and where the magnolia trees prosper. And now every time I put my feet on Mississippi soil, when I'm off the road, well, I'm at peace. On this show, it's all about hearing the stories straight from the mouths of the friends I've made along the way, their journey to success. Heck, there might be someone on, I don't even know, but you know how us Mississippi types are. We tend to take well to new company. In a Mississippi minute, all 60 of them. I'm Steve Azar. It's just like that muddy river moving slow. Ain't no worries, it's how life goes, baby. In a Mississippi minute. That's right. Welcome, team, to the show. Thanks for tuning in. Today's guest truly celebrates the storyteller and the power of a good one. Mississippi is no exception to this art form, as authors, poets, songwriters, playwrights have always been and always will be fluid in these parts and a major makeup of our fabric. The new narrative festival in Starkville, Mississippi, on the campus of Mississippi State University is in year two, and I'm fortunate enough to have been asked to speak and perform a little bit, tell my stories, and be a part of such a cool cultural event. Looking forward to spending this next Mississippi minute slash hour, however long it goes, with one of the brainchilds behind the festival, whose passion for this runs extremely deep. He's a wonderfully talented, critically acclaimed, award-winning author and novelist. Some of his work includes The Downside of Up and The Straight Dope. He's a leadership coach, speechwriter, and consultant. In addition to his corporate speechwriting, he has written and directed one-man shows for household names like Tommy Lee Jones and John Travolta, many more. Ready to dig into it all with my man right now, Dane Dunstan. What's up, Dane? Hey, Steve. How you doing, man? I'm good. How's the dog, Toby? Toby eating right now as we speak? To- Toby, Toby's getting breakfast. Toby and Tuck, we got a couple of... Uh... Uh, what I share with Norbert Putnam is is we have standard poodles. <laughs> I love so it. you got to have a pair of standard poodles, live in the country, and that's the good life. Have a beautiful woman, and, and life is good. Oh, I love it. There's not, I, I, I know the beautiful woman part. We've always had one dog at a time, just lost our basset, home name, basset hound named Waffles uh, about a year ago. It was a tough, tough no, deal. Man. Cried like a baby. Is but, that the, uh, yeah, is that the hardest thing? I, I had a dog named Dodger. Um, who died? I'm, I'm tearing up as I say this. I, I had he was the first dog in my entire life that I had from from puppyhood. He was a rescue. He was this beautiful um, uh, husky blend. People would stop me in the street and say, "That's the most noble dog I ever saw." But what that dog taught me was how to love because I was a little deficit in that area. But knowing that he needed something from me every day. Mm-hmm just changed my life and when when i had to let him go it was a very very difficult experience but he taught me how to let go too i'm so excited about talking to you just you know i hear this passion in your voice and 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 i'm thinking about how you have evolved as an artist and as a human being 
And I want yeah. to dig into all that because you never okay. know where you, you end up. So take me back growing up. Uh, your interest was it always was the first things playwrights was it you did you have being an author on your mind? I mean, when did the whole creative process start? The whole creative process probably didn't start till I was fifteen or six, probably sixteen. I think the first time I sat down and really wrote something was sixteen. But I, my very first memory in life is this: I'm two and a half years old. I'm wearing a pair of underpants. I'm standing in front of a stoop outside of an apartment building in Dallas when my parents lived. <clears throat> There's a girl on the stoop with two babies, and she's maybe seven or eight. And I say to her, I can write. And I got a piece of paper in my hand and a pencil, and she says, no, you can't. <clears throat> so to show her, I go to write something down on the piece of paper, stick the pencil through the paper and into my hand. <laughs> That's probably why I remember the experience, but it was like literally... My first memory in life is trying to prove to somebody that I could write. That's, so that's, that's, that's sort of that's been there ever since. Well, it's sort of, it's, it's, uh, it's a prophecy. <laughs> you were, yeah. <laughs> I love it. You know, you Somehow know my, I knew that's where I was going. My first, I, 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 this is not, I don't want to dig too far into this because my first memory is five in kindergarten where I'd cut up my shirt. And uh, mm -hmm. maybe you're gonna have to help me through this uh, mentally. After, <laughs> and we, I went to okay. a Catholic school with nuns, and I remember not getting a great response from all of them, and they sort of put me in a circle, and they just wore me out because they were so upset at me cutting my shirt. I don't even know why I would cut my mm. shirt. I remember it being red, and I remember, you know, it is very interesting. Uh, but anyway, would, wow. you can fix me later. <laughs> we're talking to Dave. All right. Let's let's keep. We can we can work through that one. That's pretty because the other thing that's interesting <laughs> is why no memories before five because that's pretty late. Yeah, I don't so, know. So I, don't, I can't think. Of, yeah, I can't think of anything else. I mean, I, that's as far back as it goes. I think that's when life started for me. <laughs> so, wow. And you were in, living in Mississippi at the time. Yeah, 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 yeah. Interesting. I can see myself in that spot in the hall still to this date. So, uh, but it's crazy. Fascinating. So, all right. So, you. At 15, you, it starts to catch the bug. Uh, yeah, I, I started trying to write as much as I could. Um, and from that point on, I pretty much wrote constantly. Um, uh, didn't think I had the chops for anything that was long form. Uh, so I was just kept trying to do poetry, a little bit of drawing and art. Um, uh, got accepted into a pretty good college at UC Santa Cruz when I got out of high school and... Uh, <clears throat> worked with some really good people there and worked on poetry and, and got a lot of chops for it. But, uh, I, you know, I didn't know what to do with it. it to, be, to be really honest, I just didn't know what to, to do. It didn't, it, I guess at the time it didn't feel like quite enough to just be a poet. Right. Um, so I went off, you know, looking for other things. That's an artist's journey. I mean, it's just the journey. Yeah. You, you don't know if it's real, if you uh -huh. can do it, uh, what to do with it, like you said. And uh, I get it. I mean, I get it. From my perspective, yeah. as a songwriter artist, I knew I, I knew I wanted to do it, but was it attainable? And how were you able to go about actually making, uh, you know, getting down the road for uh, far enough to keep going? You know? Yeah. Well, in your case, you didn't get anywhere till you were fourteen. So. Yeah, yeah. No, you're right. We're actually thirty-seven <laughs> before I first hit. Hey, so so take me. So you go to college. You grew up. Where'd you grow up? Well, I, I grew up all over the place. My dad was a. Uh, he he got uh, my mom and dad graduated from UC Berkeley in in, in Berkeley California, um, and he was an engineering student. His parents made him study that. Um, uh, he got a job at Kaiser Aluminum, which was in in the 
town there. And it was just after World War II. It was the beginning of sort of the rebuilding of industry, and aluminum was really big. So he was getting uh, he was getting transferred like every eighteen months. So we, I believe, I was conceived in 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 Berkeley or Oakland. Uh, I was born in Kansas City. Uh, we moved to Dallas where my sister was born, and I had that memory of wanting to be a writer. Uh, to New Orleans for a few years, to oh, L.A. for a few years, to Atlanta for a few years, and just all over the place. Four years in Australia, uh, and then sort of finished up in the in the San Francisco, Oakland area, uh, finished high school, went to college, uh, and then took off and lived in Europe for five years. Do you think all your travel growing up, it, uh, that, it, that it made a difference in your art form? Yeah, you know, it's funny. Um, I have friends who, you know, grew up in one town all their life, but there's something different uh, when you when you travel all the time. Uh, uh, psychologists talk talk about uh, uh, exceptional moments, defining moments. Um, when you're when you spend your whole life in one town, you can be fantastic and you can have extraordinary success and extraordinary things. But if you've had a lot of changes and a lot of move and a lot of destabilization. Uh, there's a correlation there to creativity. Uh, and even though it can be painful at the time, I loved it. Uh, the only thing I didn't like about moving every 18 months was that first day in the new school when the assistant principal would walk you down the hallway to your class and you had to walk into the class and 30 sets of eyeballs turned over the shoulders and was basically, who the hell are you? Right. <laughs> the new kid. <laughs> yeah. That was, but, you know, you get through that moment pretty fast. You make friends. And, and, and uh, I remember moving back from Australia, being in high school in uh, Lafayette, California, and suddenly realizing that nobody knew anything I knew. All the stuff I knew, all the places I'd been around the world twice by that point, uh, all the stuff I'd read, it didn't mean buckus to anybody. And it certainly didn't mean much to any of the girls. Yeah. So, you know, it was like, what do you do with this? How, who do you, who do you yeah. be? How do you define yourself? And I think, you know, I started to define myself as, as an artist at that point. I wasn't a jock, so who was I going to be? I was in, you know, did theater. I did, I did some writing. You just try to, you try to be, you try to figure out who you are. I love it. We're talking. I'm to still you. trying to figure it out, but <laughs> wait, no, that's good. Well, I mean, if, when you stop trying to yeah. figure it out, you might as well lay down and be done. Exactly, you know? because we all we keep changing, right? Who you are today is wildly different than who you are the day before your your Basset Hound went down, because yeah. you had to make some some changes, and wildly different from who you were the day before you were 37 and had your first hit. Yeah, no, I love it. We're talking to Arthur, a critically acclaimed artist, period, novelist. I mean, speechwriter, everything you do. I mean, and I can't wait to dig into the whole, uh, just the one-man, writing one-man plays for uh, for such household names. With Dane Dunstan, yeah. you're in a Mississippi Minute. We're going to be right back. Oh, I'm That a broken down car in the 8 a.m. traffic, bumper to bump, nobody's laughing, I'm crying. I'm the waitress in LA, way past the prime, shoulder to shoulder, half of my line, I'm crying. In a minute. 
Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar, right here on Super Talk Mississippi. I'm Steve Azar, you're in the Mississippi Minute, all 60 of them. You can finish it, because that's how we roll. I am with just really a talented, talented man that has worked with so many great artists of all kinds. And, and I want to dig into some of your friendships, uh, the effect it's had on your life, how you made those friends. We were talking earlier before we got on the air. I just I was just like a kid in a candy store with Dane Dunstan. Dane, uh, you said you spent the holidays. Just sort of take our listeners through some of your pals and, and how you guys got to meet and know each other. So we spend every August or part part thereof up in Santa Fe. And uh, so over the years, the people who kind of gravitate there and the friends I've developed are really fun. So uh, John Morris is, a, is an old friend now. Um, boy, is he old. No. <laughs> it's, it, John was one of the, one of the producers at um, Woodstock. So he was literally the guy who is running the stage, the main stage, He's he's wasn't the founder of it, but he was the guy who's like making it happen. He's putting right. the show on. Then he went on to become the uh, the manager of the uh, Jefferson Airplane uh, uh, when uh, Janis Joplin wanted to go off and uh, uh, get out of town. He sent her off to his house in the islands when he uh, wanted to do something fun. Uh, Grace Slick would call him up. They would do what they called going straight. His hair wasn't that long. <laughs> He could just brush it back over his ears. She would dress up like a housewife, uh, and they would go out and have a regular straight dinner. And then he did the same with Janice. Janice would do that with him. So this yeah. guy had all, you know, he ran he ran the uh, the, the Fillmore East. He uh, yeah. <clears throat> managed uh, Wings for Paul McCartney. So he's he's lived up there. We've been friends. Baron Woolman, who was the first um, photographer for Rolling Stone, the head of photography there for years, and was just one of the classic rock and roll photographers. Uh, is up there and is a friend of uh, Ron Spencer, uh, who was the uh, basically the chronicler of punk rock. Uh, Ron was hired by the by the Sex Pistols before they came to America to chronicle their whole journey. Uh, he's fantastic. Blake Hines, who is a photographer, who's just an amazing photographer up there. So you know, you get up there with that kind of creative group of people and just get to hang out. And you know, I've got the same here in Austin. So it's. It really makes a difference who you get to, who you get to attract to yourself, and who wants to be your friend, and who says, "Hey, come on over and let's 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 hang out." It's, I've been really lucky. Oh man, well they've been lucky. I love. We're talking to Dane Dunstan. Dane, uh, Santa Fe is a landing spot for all this art form and talent, and and why is it? Yeah. just What what draws people there? Do you think? You know, that's a really interesting question because that's been happening for a long time. I mean, if, you know, if you look at the history of, of, of the writer, just the writers, not to mention all the artists, but the writers, um, you know, Edna St. Vincent Millay, uh, uh, D.H. Lawrence, all these people who would end up there writing and, and, and doing stuff. Um, I, and I think there's, there's two things. There's, there's, it's beautiful. Um, uh, there is a underlying sort of spiritual sense there. Um, mm. And there's also like an underlying rage, which is really interesting to watch how that, that comes up. People can get really crazy. I have never seen a town where more people run red lights. <clears throat> and you would think it would be laid back. You're out in the country. Uh, you're up in the mountains and edge of the desert. And No, but people are in a hurry. They're running red lights. They're feeling like, i got to get somewhere. So it's a... 
interesting, interesting place to hang. I love it. I love it. We're talking to hit artist, period, author, novelist, Dane Dunstan. Dane, how did you develop a relationship with John Travolta, and what goes into writing a one-man play? Um, okay, well, so uh, that all came through a relationship with IBM, and they would have a series of meetings uh, uh, or series of conferences where they would bring their top salespeople together, and it was kind of a reward kind of thing, and it would be in fabulous places around the right, country. And right. I started, you know... I started getting hired to come in there and create these. Basically, it was a 55-minute one-man show, and I would sort of conceive the idea of doing it by having people talk through their life experience through the series of, of famous roles that they'd played. Um, so, uh, so John Travolta was one of those, Tommy Lee Jones, Patrick Stewart, um, just a bunch of them. Was, man, is that fun. Uh, to do and just you know you 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 get on the phone with me you find out what's going on um, you figure out how to tell the story you know John John uh, feels like he was went the wrong direction in his life what he really wanted to be was an airline pilot he he owns a a, a Boeing seven oh seven with Qantas markings he has a Qantas pilot's uniform so he flies out to Hawaii where we're having this conference. Uh, that's great. In his own jet with his whole family. With his uniform so, on? He have his uniform and everything? With the uniform on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, he he takes it very, very seriously. He plays the role. In fact, he once called the uh, the CEO of uh, Qantas and said, I'd like to be your corporate spokesperson. <laughs> so I've already got the uniform and the plane. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love so it. That, I'm talking to Dane Dunstan. Dane, you know, the, the thing you brought up is is uh, I understand it very well. United Airlines would bring me in. They'd have like hotel partners or American mm-hmm. Express, and they would bring me yep. in. I got to know them on the golf course, some of the execs, and they'd bring me in, and, and they would, and I would do these. Well, I'd hang and play golf, and uh, then I still do at times with different companies, but I enjoy it cool. so much. Once I figured out how, how much you could make as a poet, I realized I had to do something something else. And I had this idea, sort of about the time I turned 30, I had, I had sort of had a variety of, of different jobs and businesses and things I, I was trying to do. Um, and some of those paid okay for a while, but it, my heart wasn't really in them. So, you know, I, when I was 22, I opened a restaurant in London. And that was really popular wow. uh, for a couple of years. I mean, it was filled with... Uh, uh, Allen Ginsberg and, and uh, all sorts of actors and rock stars would come in there. Uh, but after about a year and a half, I'm going, the hell am I doing here? I don't want to do this 18 hours a day, six days a week. I Were you cooking writing. as well, or you just it was your place? Yeah, yeah. Are you serious? Yeah, well, so, you know, the, the, the creative part of it, I liked. So I liked, I liked designing the space. I liked designing the experience. I liked, you know, designing the menu and, and developing the dishes. That was really fun. And it was really fun running it for four years. I mean, you know, the people who would come in, I, I was once, it was, it was just about to shut down for the afternoon, end of lunch. I look through the little pass-through from the kitchen, and I see an elbow go by. Now, usually I'd be seeing a shoulder go by. No, I, this was an elbow going by the pass-through. And I just thought, what the... So I, I dart around the corner, and there settling into the seat with his wife or girlfriend is um, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. <laughs> <laughs> and, 
Now that's an elbow. <laughs> yeah, that was an elbow. So it was that that kind of experience. But you know, after doing that for a while, I just I I, I just said, okay, I'm I'm playing this wrong. I got to figure out how to actually make a living as a writer, and I got to say, I'm never going to do anything else. Uh, and so I was living in L.A. I was trying to figure out how to be a writer. Um, all right, I knew how to be a writer. I was trying to how to get paid for it. I got some gigs, so now I was making money at it. Uh, it it took a while, but finally I, I just quit, and I got to this point where I thought I had enough work lined up. This was mostly just writing anything for friends, from brochures or people who had businesses, writing speeches, writing little bits of stuff. I come home one day, and there's a uh, a red light flashing on my answering machine. That's would have been 87, I guess. And I push the button, and this voice says, Hi, my name's Don Runkle. I'm the chief engineer at General Motors. Would you please give me a call? <laughs> you know, I, I'd been working for really small companies. I didn't have any national clients. And so I, I called them, and it turned out that what had happened was I had written an article in spec for Road and Track magazine and sent it to them, and the article was about how... Chevrolet lost their brand mojo and how they could get it back. It was a car guy thing, and I thought, you know, I'm not, this is not a letter to the editor. This is going to be an article that they're going to have to publish. It's going to be so good. And I didn't even get a rejection letter from them, right? I had nothing. I never heard a word. Right. <laughs> it turned out that they had sent the article to GM, and uh, a GM had made it required reading for everybody in the C-suite. Uh, and then three months later, Don Runkle, who was the chief engineer, is calling me back and saying, we just want to know who you are. We, we've been trying to articulate this for 10 years, and you did it in 10 pages. What do you do? Wow. And I said, well, I'm a speechwriter. And he said, well, I need speeches. And uh, <laughs> that was a Thursday afternoon. It was the, uh, uh, the following Tuesday. I was on a plane to Detroit. I uh, vaulted into the C-suite and stuck to landing. And so I've been there ever since. And let's just say that that's not only a... Uh, something that paid the bills so I could do my other creative writing, but in itself has been a phenomenal journey. Wow. I just, I, I, that's, it, isn't it amazing just the path you're on and the plan you don't make and how it all comes together. We're with an amazing, amazing, talented man, Dane Dunstan. Dane, you get to play uh, DJ, Mississippi's birthplace of American music in that form of storytelling. There's a couple really oh. good ones Ike Turner and Paul yeah. Overstreet. I know Paul well. Yeah. You get to play DJ. You want to hear a little Paul Overstreet or Ike Turner? I, I Paul Overstreet. I love it. He's going to be happy. I'm going to call him and tell him you said so. You're in the Mississippi Minute. Right. We're with author, playwright, speechwriter. You name it. Anything to do with uh, putting down some serious words that we can feel and want to listen to and absorb. Dane Dunstan, you're in the Mississippi Minute. We're going to be right back. In a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar, right here on Super Talk Mississippi. Highway one on my way down some fever trail. Eating on an Abe's barbecue outside Clarksdale. Delta I'm Steve Azar. You're in a Mississippi Minute. We're on Super Talk Mississippi, all across the glorious state of Mississippi, but also on podcast throughout the globe. And uh, 
that's where you can hear Dane Dunstan and me carry on like we're doing. Dane, uh, let's talk about the New Narrative Festival. Uh, you and yeah. John Ford, Professor John Ford at State, and uh, also our girl Peggy Gardner. She's so passionate about it. I met her through uh, my CEO pal of UPS, David Abney, who's been on the show as well. Yeah. And uh, so where does all this come from? Where did it start? And uh, and I appreciate you guys including me this year. I moved and excited about it And uh, in year two. Yeah, it's going to be really fun. It's going to be great to have you there, Steve. Um, so uh, it started with uh, Steve Soltis, who's a, uh, the other co-founder. And Steve, of the yes, festival. right, right, right. Yeah, uh, Steve, probably back in 2013, um, Steve's father called me. Steve was on the board of a, uh, a University of North Texas um, journalism school. They had a little. Uh, they have a very nice uh, conference. They do. It's a writers' conference. He wanted to see if it could be expanded to be a more open kind of conference, sort of along the lines of South by Southwest yeah. for writers and readers. Uh, and his father was helping him with that. Uh, knew about me with a Texas connection. Called me in, and we started working on what this would look like, what it would be. Um, and in the conversation I was having with Steve, we were talking about how communications change. You know, the ability to you can publish anything anywhere you don't have to have middlemen um the way that the the technology that we have in social media and the, the web and everything just makes it so completely different to get work out and steve said you know it's really a new narrative and i went well that's it it's the new narrative festival um for a variety of reasons uh unt wasn't able to put it put it on uh and then steve got on the board of uh the journalism school or the communications school at uh, Mississippi State, and then it clicked. And that was the place to do it. So we did the first one last year. We had Norbert Putnam yeah. come in and talk talk about his years with Elvis and, and uh, Jimmy sports. Buffett and all yeah. the stuff that he'd done. And, and that was great. We had a variety of, of really interesting people. And it's, it's like this. Uh, this is the kind of new narrative stories that happen. At. There's, there's a guy in uh, Starkville named Lala Evans. Lala is 86, and he has, after his wife died, he built a shrine to her. He took his entire yard, he had a pretty big yard uh, in town, was kind of like, I, I think he had a house with two lots. He sort of turned the second lot into this park with sayings and games, and, and it was just a shrine to her. And then there's like a little garage that he converted into a house that's completely covered with photographs of her and their life and their marriage. The band Mute Mouth had this song called uh, Monument, and they were trying to figure out what to do for a uh, music video. The producer f is from Starkville, and he was in, in there. Somebody told him about Lala Evans. He said, how come I never heard about this? They, go, they take him through this shrine. He walks through the, the different flags and everything that's there, and he says, this would be perfect. So they created music video of the song around this guy and his love and the shrine he created for his wife who had passed away. Mm. And he dances and is this wonderful guy. Um, so we had him on stage, and, and he and I went through his life and his love and his whole story. Then we brought the music producer up, and we told that story. We showed Lala on um, uh, Ellen, Ellen's show, uh, Blowing Her Mind. And it was this whole new narrative. It was a whole new way to tell a story about a monument. Because they could have had monuments going around 
you know, looking at monuments, stone monuments. But no, no, this is a monument to love. That's what the song was about. Let's build a monument uh, to our love. So oh, at the end, great. I said to him, I said, Lala, you got anything else you want to say to the audience? And he says, yeah, would you get up and dance with me? <laughs> and we, we played the music video on the screens. He got up. He and I went down to the audience, and he danced with everybody. And everybody, I'm talking professors, I'm talking students, I'm talking just people from 18 to 88, arms in the air, all dancing. That's a new narrative. Wow. Who doesn't love to dance? I don't care. Anybody. Even if you dance bad, like Ellen on yeah. Seinfeld, which I thought was pretty cool, <laughs> uh, or Alfonso <laughs> Riviera, he can dance. Uh, the, the, the bottom line is everybody <laughs> Growing up, you know, it's such a great memory, but yeah. dancing makes you feel good. You know, it does. We don't, we don't do enough of that. You know, my parents grew up when, you know, they would go to a, a, a dinner party, people would put music on, and we'd all dance with each other's husbands and wives. And, and it was polite, and it was sweet, and you just would have this physical contact with people. You know, yeah. we still hug each other, but I think something's lost. That was, that was a fun way to to dance and you would talk and you sway and you didn't have to be a good dancer it was fun if you were but yeah well there's always we one in the room for sure that you're going like wow <laughs> well they spent way too yeah. much time in front of the mirror <laughs> yeah we're talking to dane dunston <laughs> dane this is fabulous this is fantastic and and as you it's sort of like you've created this path for yourself uh to 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 remain artistic your whole life and also the material you, you're, you, it seems like not, uh, you, it takes a lot of knowledge and studying up and, uh, and turn it into an art form. I just think it's the coolest thing, and it, it keeps you learning. And not, there's nothing greater than the process yeah. of continuing to learn. <laughs> hey, you, you said something earlier about self-publishing and all that. You know, I used to be on the major record labels and all that, and I, yeah. and I, I decided to make my move. When you self-publish material, how do you find your way in your world through the oversaturization of material? That's the downside of it. So the, the upside is anybody can get anything published. Uh, the downside is not everybody can get anything read um, exactly. or listened to. It's a challenge. Um, and, and I'll be honest, I'm not, I'm not one for self-promotion. So I'm, I'm not sitting, I'd rather be writing. Uh, so, so it's not very interesting to me to say, all right, what can I do today on social media? I'll, I'll do a little bit of it, but uh, that's just not who I am. So I sort of figure the books out there, the different books are out there. People read them, people see them, they, they want to talk about them. And, and, uh, you know, when it pops, it pops. I love it. I love it. We're talking to author Dane Dunstan. We're going to talk now. Let's talk about some of your, some of your, your books, your latest, The Downside of Up, correct? No, uh, the, no. Uh, Straight Dope. I'm always, I'm always backwards with this stuff. But that's all right. That's, that's what makes okay. me me. Okay, okay. The straight yes. dope is your latest. <laughs> straight dope is the latest. Okay. All right. Tell me about it. So it's a it's a it's a rock and roll novel. Uh, it's set. Uh, it opens uh, in the last uh, in December first of nineteen sixty eight. Uh, Janis Joplin at the Fillmore West is giving her last uh, concert with uh, Big Brother and the Holding Company. And it opens with this young cub reporter at the San Francisco Chronicle who's really excited to be a reporter because if you remember 1968, the whole world was on fire. Everything was just going crazy, assassinations, wars. Um, I mean, just, just crazy stuff was happening. It was as crazy as the times we live in now. It was just, yeah. So he's really excited. He's going to be able to chronicle all of this. He's at the right place at the right time. He gets called upstairs. They say, congratulations, you've got a beat. 
um, which for those who don't know, a beat is when you're, you're really given an assignment of an area to cover, and that's going to be your area of specialization. Right. It turns out that what they're giving them is the business of rock and roll in San Francisco, which he's freaked out about because he knows nothing about rock music and he knows nothing about music in general and he knows nothing about business. And he wants to be writing about assassinations and stuff. So, But he, he takes it on and he becomes friends with a, with a lot of people. Um, Jim Morrison on that first night at the Janis Joplin comp, uh, concert um, tries to hit him with a bottle. They take him backstage to meet the, meet the band and uh, uh, Morrison ends up throwing up down his shirt. Uh, oh, wow. And it just goes on from there. He becomes very good friends with Morrison or Morrison wants to be good friends with him. Janis wants to be his friend. They want to be his friend because he doesn't give a shit Pardon my language. Sorry uh, about bleep, uh, bleep that. Uh, uh, about uh, fame or rock and roll or who any of these people are. It's just he's not interested, right. which makes him the perfect character because then they want him to be interested, so they want to be his friend. They want to be taken seriously by serious people. So at some point, somebody uh, sends him on the path of the death of Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones, uh, and when he goes and investigates, they say maybe there's something, some information suggests that it wasn't. Uh, an accident, drowning in the pool. When he goes to England and he's investigating it, he gets beaten up for his troubles. And from that point on, he's he's hot on the tail of these killers trying to identify them uh, until the point when they're hot on his tail as he's racing to try to stop them from killing Janice and eventually Jim Morrison. And so, yeah. and, and that's obviously everybody can go to Amazon, et cetera, and find it? Yeah, just go to Amazon, Straight Dope by Dane Dunstan. Straight. I love that. I love it. Okay, all right. So you, you, you mentioned something, a quick story. Uh, Halloween is like yeah. one of my favorite times of year. I love Yeah. I love it. So last year we decided we're going to dress up as as legendary rock stars who passed away. So everybody showed up, right? So I my, my wife got me my costume, which was supposed to be Jim Morrison, but I ended up uh-huh. looking just like Howard Stern, and obviously he's still around. <laughs> I mean, exactly. So I wasn't even close to Jim Morrison, but it, but, but we went with the flow anyway, and everybody goes Howard Stern. I was going like, oh yeah, I guess that's. They said you didn't play the, you didn't play right. You, you're supposed to be a rock and roll legend that's passed away, and I said, well, I, I know that, and it didn't work out. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, that's that's what Jim Morrison would look like if he was still alive. <laughs> Actually, it. he'd look more like David Crosby. I think. No, I think you're right. I love it. I love it. All right. <laughs> With Dane Dunstan, yeah. you're in the Mississippi Minute. We'll be right back. Hey, 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 read a lot. In a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar, right here on Super Talk Mississippi. I hope it's not too late. There's still so much to say to you. I'm Steve Azar. You're in a Mississippi Minute. We're talking to Dane Dunstan. Okay, so what about The Downside Up? A comical novel of outrageous fortune. When, where was the inspiration? Uh, when did it all go down? I, I used to tell a joke at parties. You know, I was a speechwriter uh, and worked with a lot of, of top executives. Um, and I saw a lot of stuff going on in corporations. I, I think most of the places I worked were were pretty good, but I would watch these things where somebody would, would tank a company and get paid a lot of money for it. So I would tell this joke. I would say, you know, my dream job <laughs> is to be a failed CEO. 
because that's where the real money is. You know, these <laughs> these guys, you tank a company, uh, you put everybody out of business, and they give you $200 million to walk away. Yeah. You yeah, know, yeah. like the guy at Aetna or the guy at, at Office Depot back in the 90s. No, not Office, Home Depot back in the 90s. Wow. Uh, and, you know, the joke was, I... How hard could it be? You fly around the company, you make country, you make a few speeches, uh, you fail, and they they give you the money. And, and I they thought, give you, a you know, I could do that. I, you don't need two hundred million. I could do it for twenty five million. <laughs> Save everybody a lot of money. So, it, so that's where the, the the book starts. It starts literally with a corporate speechwriter, who's at both at the top of his game and really down on his luck. His his wife has left him. He's completely broke. He's in Hong Kong. He's trying to figure out how to pay his bills next week and when will the check from this client come in. Um, and at the same time, he's coaching this executive through a really tough spot and has the intuition to see how to, how to fix that. So he gets invited to this executive suite for a big party at the end of this conference, makes his joke, and to his surprise, the next morning outside the hotel, there's this big Rolls-Royce waiting for him, and one of the guys from the dinner party says, you want to ride to the airport? <laughs> and the guy basically seduces him into taking the job as the CEO of a tech company, um, and he convinces himself that he could, could actually do it. Uh, and then he discovers a couple of things. He discovers that uh, he's got to rewrite the whole script because he discovers that while he's getting his $25 million, 11,000 families are going to be put out of business right? and be made poor. And he also mm. kind of starts to get a sense of uh, when the smoke clears, the only person sitting in the congressional investigation is going to be him. Yeah. Wow. And so he has to rewrite the script and make it come out with a different ending. So it's a comic novel. It's funny, and it's just, it's just about the world of, of, of trying to run companies. And in, in a sense, what it is, is kind of a, 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 a case study that's uh, how to coach an executive or how an executive, how a leader can coach themselves into both being a successful leader and a real human being. Wow, that's amazing. I love it. Well, I'm looking forward to digging in. Uh, I'm going to do that after we're done with our conversation. I love it. Okay, how about the Red Guide? You wanted a big award for this. Oh. Best New American Play. Yeah. I mean, it was a little ways back. It was, what, 22 years ago? It was, 23 years yeah, ago? Yeah, it was uh, 96. 96. So The Red Guide is a, is a, 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 a play that takes place over, over, a, 50, over a 10-year period. Um, three acts. Uh, one when uh, uh, the guy is 30, one when he's 35, and one when he's 40. Um, and it's basically... Uh, a man, his father, uh, starting with taking a taking a vacation, taking a trip in uh, the south of France. They haven't seen each other for a while. They're trying to to get together, and and so it's just it's just a love story. Uh, I love. And it, it came it it came from a trip that I made with my father when I was forty five, and he was. I was about to was, ask like you about that. 70. I was about to ask yeah. you. Was it personal? Yeah. We had been, personal. Yeah, we had been. Well, it, here, here's the thing. It, it, it started off personal. We had, we had been uh, talking about taking a trip together. I said, we haven't had a father-son trip for ages. What if we did something? And we decided to go to the south of France. And uh, he was going to be over there anyway. I flew over. We met up in Paris and went down to the south of France. Had this great time. And, and somebody said, you got to go to this restaurant. 
it's on a river, it's an old mill house, and we went there, and we're sort of sitting out on this patio, and this patio is like the prow of a ship in, in this river, and then there's a road nearby, and I just thought, you know what, this is, this is like a stage. This could be a play. You could set a play on this patio. So then I started thinking about what it was, and I, I went home and, and uh, started writing this thing, and at first it was just my father and I, and then I realized, oh, that's not working. You know, you, you, you try to write something that's too personal. It's just us and our conversations. I'm like, I'm like doing a documentary memoir of being on a trip with my father. So I had a couple of characters uh, left over from another story that were kind of a couple of shady grifters, an older, older man and a, a young hotshot who thought he was really hot. So I, just, I literally just transported those two um, characters into that play, and it took off. It just really worked because there was an edge to it. Uh, where, where was the it? Sun was on the. I'm sorry. I mean, where did where was it? Uh, in, at the at the Live Oak Theater in uh, here in Austin. Okay, I love it. That's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. fantastic. Yeah, it's really fun. Got got great great reviews and great uh, great play, and it was fun. I just love this journey you've been on, and I know you've enjoyed it as well. People can go online and find all your work, uh, your website. I can go to my website, or they can go to, uh, for the books, go to Amazon. Go to danedunstan.com. That's a good place to start. Start, Yeah, that's always a good place. I've got, I, I oversaturate everybody. They totally get sick of me by the time they go to my website. <laughs> hey, listen, I can't thank you enough. We have been with a be- the beautiful mind of a talented writer, Dane Dunstan in the Mississippi Minute. Blessings. I'm Steve Azar, in a Mississippi Minute, all 60 of them, where you can take your sweet time. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.